going to be open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please go and grab one. It would be really helpful to follow along. We'll be mostly spending our time in Acts 20. Otherwise, I'll uh, put the passages up on the screen there that we'll need as well. There's an outline also in your bulletin. Uh, it be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. And we'll have a, a question and answer time at the end and we'll, we'll uh, see how we go. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that you are kind to us. We thank you that you care for us and you love us all the time. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us to hear his words today and put them into practice. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to pick things up with Acts 20. So we, we, we're skipping a bit, aren't we? We're not covering every single verse of Acts. And for the moment, that's okay. Um, I'm hoping that you're reading through Acts as we're going through this series. So Acts 20, and Paul's on his third missionary journey. So if you just look at the map here, you can see, if you roughly see the, the, the direction, but he's sort of heading, um, starting over there at Antioch, over that way, up over there, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens and Corinth, we talked a bit about last week, and then um, back up again and then down this way here, there's Samos uh, and there's Miletus and here's Ephesus. They're the two places that are relevant particularly for today and he's on his way over here to Jerusalem. We'll find out why in a moment. However, now in verses 7 to 11, it's not often you get comical scenes in the Bible. Um, the Bible's not meant to be a, a, you know, a, a joke book like that but there is a slightly comical scene that I'd just like to start with today because well I think it's a little bit funny in verses 7 to 11 uh, we read of the account of the miraculous healing of the young man Eutychus now you might not have heard this story it's a it's a good scene now this happened at Troas which you can see in our map up there as well uh, there it is right at the top this is all the way up there at Troas so Paul had been speaking for so long, in fact, Luke actually records the incident by saying Paul was speaking and going on and on. On and on he went, warm, uh, sorry, long well into the warm Middle Eastern night. So long that poor Eutychus, who was diligently trying to carefully follow along the sermon, it was getting late at night and everyone had lit all these candles. There were candles everywhere. It was warm, it was hot. Eutychus was sitting on the, on the windowsill trying to get a little bit of fresh air to keep him going. You know, someone's at church, you sit at the back so you get some air coming through so you keep listening to the sermon. Just like that, he was there, but he couldn't do it. He fell asleep, he fell off the windowsill three stories down and splat, he died. Nasty, isn't it, really? Uh, sermons are dangerous things. Uh, <laughs> But what happened, of course, well, uh, he fell into this deep sleep and he fell out of the window and he died. Um, now, clearly this would cause a bit of a commotion, don't you think, in a sermon? Um, anything, as I said, uh, to, to get out of a sermon, fall out of a window maybe, I don't know. Paul um, headed down to the street, he wrapped his arms around him and he was healed. Uh, it's a great story, read it, um, and uh, you can see it in verses 7 to 11. Now... I've got, this, um, I've got a number of preaching books in my office that I've used over the time and, and they're great encouragements and so on. My favourite preaching book is this one. It's called Saving Eutychus. How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. <laughs> it's awesome. What a great title. Uh, really good preaching book too. Anyway, that's what we're going to hope for today. 
that as we hear God's word, we're going to stay awake. So hopefully no one's sitting in any precarious position. No one's near a windowsill or anything like that. We should be okay. That's good. All right, so we're in chapter 20, uh, around verses 13 to 16, and the Apostle Paul has now embarked on this long-awaited return to Jerusalem, as I explained before. It had been a long time, probably several decades, since he'd been back to Jerusalem. And he was eager to get back for Pentecost. Uh, Verse 16 tells us that. Paul and Luke is travelling with him, the, the writer of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. They were passengers on a merchant ship, slowly making its way down the Aegean coast, quite a beautiful coastline as well, towards the Mediterranean, and they stopped at various centres for trade. As the Lord would have it, the ship stopped at Miletus, which wasn't far from Ephesus. Again, you can see it up the map up there. It, it was a layover that lasted several days. Paul hadn't planned on this delay, but he decided to make the most of it, and he decided to request that the Ephesian church leaders, who he'd spent some time with a little while back, would meet up with him and come and join him at Miletus for, I guess, a final chat. That's what it was. Some final words, because Paul knew that he wouldn't see them again. This would end up being one of the greatest farewells of the Bible, Right, this would have to be one of the greatest farewells. Although it would be much more than just a few teary goodbyes and hugs, uh, it was like a relay runner passing on a baton to the next teammate. See, Paul effectively passes on the baton, this ministry baton, reminding these church leaders from Ephesus, reminding these church leaders of his ministry model. And he says to them, here's the baton. Now, go and do likewise. Take this back to your church at Ephesus. Go and do likewise. Here is the ministry model that I want you to follow in God's church. He says, keep running hard. That's what he says. Now, we can divide Paul's speech into three sections. You can see in your outline there. I've got those three sections um, relating to the past, relating to the future, and then relating to the present. First then, Paul reminds them of his past ministry in Ephesus, which we can read more about, if you like, in chapter 19, which we skipped. And also you get a bit of a feel for the ministry in Ephesus when you read Paul's letter to the, to the church at Ephesus, um, Ephesians. And if you read 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, that's also a letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, particularly to one of the leaders of the church at Ephesus, the young man, Timothy. Okay, so his past. Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Let's go, let's have a look halfway through verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. So looking back over the events in Ephesus, there's no doubt Paul, well Paul's really, he's defending his ministry. If we look back at those events, Paul had opponents, Paul had critics. It had been about a year since his time in Ephesus and rumours and accusations were flying around, were being spread by his opponents. The, the, the Jewish leaders. And so Paul reminds these Ephesian church leaders, he says, you know, 
You know, you were there. You saw it happen. You, you, you saw it. Uh, you know what it was like. It actually reads a little, if you remember the book of the, the letter, Paul's letter to 1 Thessalonians, which was also on this, I won't go back to the map, but also on this missionary journey. And Paul defends his ministry in 1 Thessalonians 2. The circumstances actually are quite similar in terms of opposition, uh, persecution, responding to critics and so on. Here's, here's what um, uh, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, you know, right? you were there, you heard it, you saw it happen. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not, a far, not, not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Uh, down to verse 5. You know, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. Uh, verse 9. Surely you remember. It rings a bell, doesn't it? Like Acts 20. Brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. It's the same in Acts 20. You know, you remember. You remember the past. You know what happened. You were there. And so in Acts 20, with these leaders of the church in Ephesus, Paul reminds them of his ministry to them. Uh, in verse 19, his humility. I actually think a better word there might be his humiliation. It's more to do with his opposition that he encountered. It's more to do with the persecution that, that, was, that, that he uh, suffered. You remember, you know of my humiliation, my persecution for the gospel. Uh, you know of my faithful teaching ministry, Paul says. In verse 20 again, in public and in private. So in public, in the, in the synagogues and uh, in the public places and marketplaces and so on. Declaring that both Jews and Gentiles must turn to God in repentance. That's what he declared. That's the gospel and trust in the Lord Jesus. So Paul effectively says to those church leaders, this is what I've done. Now go and do likewise. Passes on that baton. Go and run. Run ahead. Well, next Paul speaks about his future. So it's a point two in our outline there. His, his future, namely, it's really it's suffering for the sake of Jesus. We'll go from verse 22. And now, compelled, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of, um, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Okay. Notice the shift in language. It's no longer, you know, you were there. It's now, I know. See that? So Paul turns from his past, from the past, which they know they saw, to the future, which as the Holy Spirit instructed Paul, he now shares with them. The same Spirit who warns of hardships in every town. It's a warning that's probably come to him through some sort of messenger, a prophet, that the Holy Spirit spoke through and warned him about what's coming next. But nevertheless, the Spirit compels him to keep travelling to Jerusalem. That's where he needed again to preach the gospel. 
to stand firm for Jesus, and we read about that in the, in the coming chapters, sort of the end of the Acts, really. He also knows that in Jerusalem, things are going to get ugly. He knows that. That's where most of his opponents are. So he knows that persecutions will come, suffering will come, but he still goes. Paul's motivation, it's not survival, is it? Uh, he, he, he says, consider my life worth nothing to me. It's not survival. It's preaching the gospel. That's his motivation. And to finish the race well. Testifying the good news of God's grace no matter what the, the repercussions. Paul is not intent on, on stumbling across the finish line. You know, if you ever watch the, um, an end of a marathon, there's usually some runners who just sort of, <coughs> just their, their lactic acids build up in their legs, they've got nothing left, they're often on their hands and knees, stumbling across the finishing line, barely putting one foot in front of the other. No, no, he's, Paul doesn't want to be like that. Uh, he wants to be like a Kenyan world champion, <laughs> just powering on to the finish, sprinting to the end, powering to the end, preaching the gospel, serving God and his church. He's an old man here. He's an old man. Uh, Paul's example is to finish strong. Paul's example is not just a stumble, stumble home. His example is to finish strong. Keep preaching the gospel, keep serving God and his people. Now, you might be wondering too, how, how does Paul know that he won't see them again? Uh, how can he sow with such confidence? Well, uh, the clue's back in 19 verse 21, if you want to look back there. But that's where Paul speaks of his desire to go and preach the gospel in Rome. And I think knowing with that and how dangerous that may well be, I think he knows that his last days will be there. He's an old man, so he knows his last days are coming. Uh, and whether it's in Jerusalem and he knows that things are going to get ugly there, that's where his opponents are, he may well be killed for the gospel there, but he knows that in Rome uh, there they, they also will be strong opposition. So he knows that he's probably not, most likely, he knows he's not going to come back to Ephesus or, or Miletus. There's a bit of a solemn moment for Paul, uh, and I think we feel the weight of it right at the end of the chapter when... Um, when, he, when there's these t there's tears, uh, he's there saying goodbye on the wharf, getting onto the boat on his way to Jerusalem. Paul has done all he can with them. And so that's why he says what he says in verses 26 and 27. He taught them the whole will of God. The, old, um, the old, older version of the Bible says the whole counsel of God, um, which I quite like. But in other words, this is the message of salvation from beginning to end. He's taught them God's word. Paul did not merely proclaim what pleased his listeners. He taught them everything. You hear that? Uh, this will come back, this has become more relevant in a moment too. He preached the whole plan of salvation, including uh, a warning of coming persecution, of coming judgment. And so, well, he, he, it's not a heartless comment. He wipes his hands, of, he's innocent of their blood. Because he's taught them everything about following Jesus, the whole will of God, from beginning to end, which includes coming judgment, includes the need to repent, and includes opposition to the gospel. Paul's examples is theirs to follow. He's passing on the baton. I like how one author put it. He shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. 
He taught the whole gospel to the whole city with his whole strength. That's good, isn't it? I hope one day I can say that before God takes me home. His final word. Paul's final word to the leaders, verse 28 to 33. So having looked back at his minist- to his ministry in Ephesus, uh, which they know, and on to his coming sufferings and separation from them, uh, which he knows, right? Paul now gives them his final charge. The past and the future will together shape their present ministry. And it boils down to this. Keep watch. Be on your guard. That's what it comes down to. Keep watch. Be on your guard now. That's what he says. That's what God says to the churches. Keep watch. Be on your guard. These leaders are to be spiritual bodyguards. And of course the body meaning the church. They are to be the spiritual bodyguards of the church. They protect and keep watch over the body. Ever ever watched a bodyguard at work? Even on the movies? You know, maybe you've seen the, the Prime Minister, you've able to see him in, in action. There's bodyguards there. Seem what they do. They're the ones usually with suits. They're very well dressed. And, um, and uh, often an earpiece in, something like that. You know, one of the most famous bodyguards was a guy called Lawrence Turond. Now, you probably haven't heard of Lawrence Turond. Uh, he was the, fa- the most... In the, in the sort of early 80s and 90s, he was one of the most famous bodyguards going around, maybe in the 70s too. Um, he was the bodyguard of Muhammad Ali. You'd think, why does he need a bodyguard? Man. But he does, apparently. <laughs> um, Michael Jackson... Uh, and, and this is, he was the bodyguard to Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, like the famous martial arts actor. How about that? Why would he need anybody? Well, he did. But, of course, you may remember him as someone different if you've been around for a little while. He was a bit of a cult figure with young people too. He was, of course, Mr. T. Remember Mr. T? Uh, you played the fool. Um, <laughs> so if you don't know Mr. T, again, parents, educate your children. Um, see some blank faces here. That's okay. <laughs> Mr. T was well known for a, for a number of movies. He was in Rocky, the old Rocky movies, Rocky 2. He was the baddie in Rocky 2. He was also in the A-Team movies and franchise. So if you um, would have seen those, if you're old enough or, or you just was, were a fan. Um, he was the most well-known and much sought-after bodyguard before he became a famous actor and these days just sort of a celebrity. Although he's getting pretty long in the tooth at the moment. He's still looking pretty good though. Still got his mohawk. Uh, but if you watch bodyguards at work, so here's a classic. This is um, the uh, North Korean leader and his bodyguards. Um, I believe he's in the car. Maybe he's not. Could be a body double. Who knows? But the bodyguards are real. What, is, what, what do they do? They, they, they keep watch. They, they look for threats. They look for threats in front of them. They look for threats to the side of them. They look for threats behind them. That's what a bodyguard does. And threats could even come from their own people. That's Paul's charge to the churches. That's Paul's charge to these church leaders at Ephesus. Be a spiritual bodyguard. Keep watch. Threats to the church and gospel ministry can come from anywhere. And they can even come from inside the church, Paul says. Let's note first, however, in verse 28, if you've still got your Bibles open or your phones open or something like that, notice that these church leaders must keep watch over themselves. He said they can't care for the flock 
if they neglect their own spiritual needs. It's really important. Verse 28, keep watching over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, uh, bought with his own blood. See, next they are to be shepherds of the church of God, uh, tending and feeding the sheep. How, how do you be a spiritual bodyguard? Well, one thing you do is that you tend and feed the sheep. And the way, we, way, way you do that, of course, is you, you feed the flock with the good food of God's word. What we're doing now, really, isn't it? We're looking at God's word, hopefully soaking it in. We have no one's fallen out of a window yet, which is great. Um, <laughs> they feed the flock with the good food of God's word. These leaders must remember how valuable the church is in God's sight. You see that? The church is the church of God. You see that? Which he bought with his own blood on the cross. That's how the church is possible because our Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sin. The church is not the church of pastor so-and-so or minister so-and-so. The church is not pastor so-and-so's church. It's the church of God. If you want to get really technical in the Greek, it's a possessive. It's an of. It's God's church. It's not my church. It's God's church. And third, these church leaders must keep watch for wolves. Uh, that is false teachers. And some of which will come from even inside the church, Paul warns. So in verse 29, I know that after I leave... Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. That, that's the, just in terms of what happens with, with, um, uh, with sheep and so forth and those, they were the greatest threats. The wolves coming into the flock and killing a sheep and that's why Paul uses that analogy. So verse 30, even from your own men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, be a spiritual bodyguard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, uh, warning each of you night and day with tears. Such teachers, these are, Jesus actually calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Do you understand that analogy? Uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus calls them. They're, they'll distort the truth, Paul says. In other words, they're watering it down, minimising the authority of scripture. Paul says, watch out. Uh, picking and choosing their way through the Bible, only hearing what their itching ears want to hear, which is what Paul later writes to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy, as, he, as uh, Timothy passes the church in Ephesus. Maybe Timothy was here, we don't really know exactly, might, he might have been here this, at this gathering in, in Acts 20. Uh, Paul says again from his second letter to Timothy, such leaders... These false teachers have a form of godliness but deny its power. That's what false teaching does. It denies the power of the gospel. It says, I'll have my own interpretation, thanks, or I'll just leave this bit out because I know better. The authority is with me and my what I say rather than God. And that actually that denies the gospel, denies the, the power of God's word. Uh, you might have seen this week on the news, actually, uh, this last week, Monday night or Tuesday morning, it was, it was, it was um, uh, reported on 
the setting up of a new Australian diocese called the Diocese of the Southern Cross. It, it was announced uh, this week at the Global Anglican Futures Conference in Canberra. Uh, a lot of people from the Sydney Diocese went to that. I sort of thought bad because I wasn't there. Anyway, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> Gafcon, um, it's called, is a, is a breakaway group of Anglican church leaders who now make up the majority of worldwide Anglican bishops and so forth from across the world who have formed in protest opposing established church Anglican church leaders who have rejected the authority of Scripture and in their revisionist teaching. That's how Gafcon came about sort of in 2008 actually. This new diocese of the Southern Cross, which um, our... Archbishop Kanishka um, Raphael has um, supported and wants to support. It uh, doesn't mean anything different for the Sydney Diocese, by the way, and we're in the Sydney Diocese. Uh, but this new Diocese of the Southern Cross was formed really to support local ministers and churches who can no longer sit under Anglican bishops and church leaders who distort the truth, who water down the authority of Scripture in their leadership and in their teaching. So it's a, it's a sad thing that this is, it's come to this, but it's also, well, it's a good thing in, some, in many ways to support those ministers and churches who cannot sit under a, a bishop who doesn't teach the truth about Jesus. Now, most recently, this has come to a head in these established bishops uh, in their support of same-sex marriage and in their failure to uphold the teaching of Jesus on marriage and human sexuality. Um, at this stage, there's actually only one church in that new diocese and it does cover the, the whole of Australia um, but there's a lot of talk about many more churches joining. I, I doubt they'll join from the Sydney Anglican Diocese. That wouldn't make any sense. We have wonderful godly bishops who preach the gospel and stand firm for Jesus' teaching on marriage and human sexuality um, but in other dioceses across the country there are many bishops who don't do that and, and water down the authority of scripture and distort the truth. Uh, so at the moment, the, our previous Archbishop of Sydney, his name's Glenn Davies, he's the new Bishop of the Diocese of the Southern Cross. Uh, and he will remain that Bishop until they have their first synod. And that really is, they'll do their first synod when, it, when there's enough uh, churches to form a synod and therefore make a vote. It might, Glenn Davies might end up being the new, the, he might continue being uh, the new Bishop of the Diocese of Southern Cross. We'll wait and see. Uh, if you read this week's e-news, which I'm sure you all did, uh, if you don't receive the e-news, it means you haven't put in a, um, a little tear-off slip in the bulletin giving us your details and so on. But in the e-news this week, uh, there's two links. One's from the, the um, Southern Cross Anglican newspaper from the Sydney Diocese. You can read a bit more there. There's also a good link to questions, questions and answers uh, from the GAFCON website. You might want to ask a question to me after church if you want to. You're very welcome to, or even in our question and answer time, that'll be fine. What I'm going to do now, it's a bit of a pause in the sermon, really. Um, I'm going to sort of pray for that situation. And it's actually a prayer that a number of ministers are praying this morning at across churches in response to what's happened this week at GAFCON. And then I'll wrap things up with Acts 20. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do bring before you the tensions in the National Anglican Church in Australia that have flared up this week. Some of us have read with concern about controversy and division in our national denomination. 
We pray for Anglican churches across Australia that the truth about Jesus might be taught clearly, faithfully, openly, so that men and women and boys and girls might be saved and grow as disciples of Jesus. Lord, especially we pray for the pastors, rectors, vicars of congregations where the local bishop is not teaching Christ and is not supportive of faithful gospel ministry and where ministering Christ in that situation is especially difficult. Mostly we pray that those unfaithful bishops would turn back to you. We pray for those faithful pastors serving under unfaithful bishops and hence in really difficult situations. Lord, thank you for the careful thought and planning that has gone into setting up this new diocese of the Southern Cross and for Glenn Davies as he takes on the role of bishop of that new diocese. We pray that for those pastors and congregations that are finding their relationship with their local bishop so strained, that you would give them wisdom about whether or not joining the Diocese of the Southern Cross is a wise way to go, or whether they should stay in the traditional denomination and continue to agitate for truth. We pray for patience and goodwill for the faithful ministers of Christ as in different situations, different leaders and congregations make different decisions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, you might want to ask a question about that. You're very welcome to. Um, I wasn't at the conference, but a lot of friends who were and have done a fair bit of catching up and reading about it. So, so friends, let, let's just wrap a few things up here. What, is God's, what does the word of God say to faithful teachers of the gospel? Well, God actually says that opposition will come and it may come from the church itself. So keep watch, be a spiritual bodyguard, keep preaching the truth as, as shepherds of God's flock no matter what cultural expectations come. And as we read, as we read from Revelation chapter 2, this was what Ian read to us earlier on, uh, that letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus, written probably 20 or 30 years after this meeting in, in Acts 20. Uh, this will be a struggle for churches. It's not easy. It's why we prayed just then that those churches would be strong and, and be wise in their decisions. Repentance may well be needed. Perhaps these leaders that Paul was speaking to in Acts 20 and that Jesus refers to in Revelation 2, perhaps they did need to be more vigilant because they'd forgotten their first love, as, as um, Jesus says in Revelation 2. Okay, well, Paul closes his words to them by saying this. As they're just wonderful, especially verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that this, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. And then in verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. It's quite a scene, isn't it? Paul was passed on the baton to the next runners. He says, here's my model of ministry. Now go and do likewise. This is God's word to his church today. Indeed, it's, what it's, it's what's expected of our church leaders today as shepherds of God's flock. 
And of course, as the church of God, it's what we must expect and insist upon. How about we pray and then um, we'll see if there's any questions or comments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, uh, for this account of what happened when Paul spoke these, his last farewell words to these Ephesian church leaders. And of course, Lord, Lord, they're words of yours to us today too. Lord, may we hear them. May we put them into practice in our lives. May we trust in you and your glorious gospel, the gospel that saves. In Jesus' name, amen.